get up a little earlier and show up here at 9 a.m. to come to the classes that we offer, uh, can I just kindly tell you that you're missing it? I mean, we got some good stuff going on. We really, really do. Um, there's a class, interestingly, I, I've been sitting in just the last few weeks after I finished the new members that I do um, on the Old Testament survey. And this morning, for example, some of the points that were brought out in just looking at some of the prophets are going to connect so well with some of the points I'm going to make now in this hour. And we didn't plan that. That's just something that God did. But if you were in that class, you'll see the connection. If you uh, find yourself, I, I know, you enjoy sleeping in, and that's all, that's all good. But I'm just saying, if you're interested in learning more, if you're interested in getting some really good info, I mean, there's some really good info that's being put out. And every quarter, we have new classes, and you'll hear more about that again. But you can jump in next week. You don't have to wait for the beginning of a quarter. I uh, really encourage you to do that. Okay, we are in a new mini-series in the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 9. You might want to get your Bibles there and get ready. It's uh, called God's Chosen People, Israel's Road to Righteousness. That's, that's what we're calling it. And so um, what we saw last week as we did the introduction, the first five verses, is that the nation of Israel, very clearly the context coming through the first five verses for this whole chapter and as well as chapters 10 and 11, as we will see, is that Israel certainly had some privileges. And there's a list of eight things in verses 4 and 5 that Israel had going for them. Uh, God very clearly chose Israel to be his people throughout the Old Testament. They were chosen to carry God's message to the rest of the world. God always cared about the whole world. And so we saw last week that they began this journey. Their, their, their road began with God giving an unconditional promise to a man named Abram. And that eventually through Abram's seed, we find the nation of Israel emerged. And when that happened, as, as we have mentioned last week, for example, Romans chapter 9 will look at the nation of Israel from the perspective of the church age where we are now. It, it looks back towards Israel, to the Old Testament version, Israel's past. When we get to Romans chapter 10, we'll see how God is considering the nation of Israel today within the context of this age in which we live. And then when we get to Romans chapter 11, we'll actually see how God is viewing Israel moving forward into the future beyond the church age. And so past, present, and future, the nation of Israel coming through. And that's what our mini-series is going to be. It's going to be these three chapters. It's going to take about three months to go through that. But you know the story coming through the Old Testament. As a whole, as a nation, as a people, Israel blew it. Uh, they had all those privileges going for them, those things that are listed in verses 4 and 5, but at the end of the day, they rejected their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he showed up. They were carnal, uh, so now they find themselves outside of God's grace. They're, he's outside of God's plan, at least for a while. And the next thing that we see as Israel, as we track their progress on this journey that they're on, uh, is that uh, since they rejected God's righteousness, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they wanted to have a king. They wanted to have a kingdom. They wanted to rule over the other nations. But they weren't really interested in God's uh, moral standard. They weren't really interested in his righteousness. They weren't really interested in submission to God's moral plan for them. And so as a result, they find themselves on this detour. Uh, just to point out the emphasis that God gives toward the, the order of things, first righteousness and then a kingdom. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 20, 
The Bible says, for I say unto you that except, this is Jesus speaking, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness always comes first before the physical blessing of, an, of a literal kingdom. Matthew 6.33, a very well-known verse of scripture, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Speaking of the earthly blessings. Hebrews chapter 7 Verse number two, the reference is to a man, an obscure character of the Old Testament named Melchizedek, who very clearly is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being interpreted king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. And so as it is charted through the scriptures regularly, you always have to have righteousness first before you get peace, before you get physical blessings and a kingdom and all of these things that Israel will eventually see come to fruition, but they got on a detour. They rejected the righteousness, and so they're in a bad spot right now. Nevertheless, we saw last week that God's promise to Abraham was unconditional. It is not based upon Israel's response. God will one day eventually fulfill the promises that he made, but the fact that Israel is on a detour does not mean they're totally cast away. We will see that. It just means that they're taking a time out. How about that? And that God is going to use another plan and then bring them back in. So the title of today's message, I've given the, the purpose of God's calling and election. The purpose of God's calling and election. And, and we're going we're gonna to come across some landmines and, and, and navigate through them, I think, pretty easily. It's going to be Bible study today, so I hope you came prepared. Uh, we're going to start in verse number 6. If you'll follow along, we'll read down to verse number 16. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election, it's kind of where I took the title, might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. As you can see, there's a few verses in this passage that maybe you've read before, and maybe you've wondered, I wonder what that's all about. We're going to see very clear today what that's all about. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. So, Heavenly Father, as we come before your word in this hour, again, we just exalt your holy name. We are so thankful to be in your presence. We're so thankful for all that you've done for us. We're so thankful for the time that we could just commune with you in the spirit and worship. We're thankful, Lord, that you have given us a, a perfect copy of your word, that we can trust it. It is absolutely accurate. You reveal to us exactly what you want us to know, and we can literally, just by comparing your word, your scripture, with other places in your word, you have a self-defining book, and we need not to worry 
about private interpretations. We need not to worry about our opinions or thoughts about what things might mean. All we have to do is see what you said and it makes it very clear. I pray that you would open our eyes of understanding. I pray that you would teach us this hour this issue of calling an election that sometimes people get confused about. I pray that you would be honored and glorified in our midst and I pray that you would use this time. In your holy name we pray, amen. All right, the first thing that we're going to see, the purpose of God's calling an election, obviously, in the context, is going to be concerning Israel. No surprise there. That's what the subject matter is all about. It is concerning Israel. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through these verses from 6 to 13, which is really the bulk of what's being taught, uh, just looking at the direct, literal context of what is being said. And the first thing that we're going to see, and you have a little uh, diagram in your notes, is, is two Israels. There are two Israels. And, and so what we see is, is that, like in verse 6, they're not all Israel, which are of Israel. That's kind of a weird statement. They're not all Israel, which are of Israel. And you're like, well, how did the non-Israel get Israel? And they're called Israel if they're not Israel. Okay. So obviously there are different categories. God is separating out the categories to help us understand something. And it's really not that hard to see because you go back through the scripture and we see that the physical seed of Abraham, just because Abraham had a child, does not necessarily mean that that is the child that is going to get the inheritance. But rather the child that comes from the promise that was given to Sarah that she would have a child, that is the child that will ultimately receive the inheritance. And so that's literally what we're looking at. So what you can consider with this diagram, what you can consider with this is that there is the greater body of the nation of Israel. The, the national life of Israel as a, as a political entity exists. But there is a subset within the context of national Israel that we will call spiritual Israel. We'll talk more about this as we get into chapter 11 as well. But there is, a, there is a group of people within the body of Israel that actually want to believe God, while there are others within the body of Israel that don't necessarily want to believe God. And that's exactly what he's talking about in verse number six. They're not all Israel that are of Israel. And I don't want you to be confused because sometimes verse six is twisted to, um, to people think that it means, it doesn't really mean this, that you are not all Israel that are of Israel means that somehow you're adding new people to Israel. For example, the church. And there's a whole line of teaching out there that would say that the church replaces Israel called replacement theology. And that in so doing, there is no more future for the return of the nation of Israel, which applies to a whole lot of things, not just politically in our world today, but in prophecy and in future dealings of the kingdom. And so this idea that the church is, they're not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, there's new guys that are going to be added. No, that's not what it's teaching. What he's literally doing is he's taking away some of those that are in the category because they really didn't believe God. And we're going to see that very clearly as we walk through this, okay? So what God is doing is he is electing. He is calling a people that will ultimately be this nation. But even from within that nation, there will only be those that actually believe him. Actually, if you wanted to just compare this for your own interest, you can jot down in your notes uh, the fig tree and the olive tree. Uh, as you go through the scriptures and you'll see God use this symbolism of the fig tree and the fig tree represents the nation of Israel in their political understanding. The political nation of Israel is represented as the fig tree. There's gonna come a time when the fig tree will put forth her, her green leaves and branches and begin to spread forth and sprout. 
Okay, the, rebirth, the beginning of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. That's the fig tree on a, that's the national representation of Israel. But whenever the Bible refers to the olive tree, we'll see that in chapter 11. The olive tree then represents the spiritual life of Israel. And if you went back all the way to Genesis, you would find that there's only so many trees that are listed in the garden, and there's only a couple of them that are listed by name, and one of them is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and one of them is the tree of life, and one of them was when Adam and Eve sinned and they knew that they were naked and they went and they hid from God, how did they cover themselves? They covered themselves with fig leaves, which represent a system of self-righteousness. That's Israel in a national context. It's very self-righteous and not acceptable. But ultimately the tree, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, and it's not a study for today, that is the tree of life most likely is the olive tree. Anyways, the olive tree most certainly is the tree that represents Israel on a spiritual level. Uh, to illustrate this principle in our context here in Romans chapter 9, we're going to see two examples. Very clear, very simple examples. They're basically two stories of two miraculous births from two women that were each barren before they had these children. Both Sarah and Rebecca had no children, and miraculously, God did something. And what we see as we get into this is that these individuals are going to be what we understand and call, these individuals are the federal heads of their nations. That's going to be really important. We talked about the idea of a federal head, kind of a technical term. We talked about the idea of a federal head, if you were with us back in Romans chapter 5, when we talked about Adam and Jesus Christ. Adam, if you are in Adam, you inherit death. In Adam, all die. But in Jesus Christ, and 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus Christ the second Adam, in Christ, all are made alive. And so if you are represented by the figurehead of Adam, everybody that's born the first time, physically born, we are born in Adam. But when you are born again, you are born again in Jesus Christ. And now your entire being is represented before God in the person of Jesus Christ, no longer in the person of Adam. And that's the idea of a figurehead, or a federal head, excuse me. And so these individuals that we'll see coming out of here are actually federal heads that represent nations. And God most certainly chooses one over another. And so the first one that we're going to see is Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac is clearly the one that is chosen. Ishmael is clearly the one that is not. Now, if you know anything at all about the Bible story, you know this story, that Abram was given the promise that he, of him was going to be, you know, all these blessings and bless the whole world, but his wife was barren and they couldn't have a child, and she came up with a great idea and said, let's help God out. By the way, when you jump in with good ideas to help God out, odds are it ain't going to work. And so she said, I've got this handmaid, and, you know, she's young, and she can bear children, so why don't you go into her, Abraham, and bear children with her, and you have my permission, and for whatever crazy reason, Abraham said, okay, and he did it, and he should have figured that after it happened, his wife would have been like, why in the world did you do that? Well, you kind of told me to. Yeah, but I don't like it. He should have known better. He shouldn't have done that. So he goes into Hagar, the handmaid, and he has a child with her, and that child is Ishmael. Ishmael represents the flesh. Ishmael is the product of a fleshly decision, a fleshly relationship, certainly outside of God's plan, 
outside of God's will. Isaac represents the promise. Isaac is the child that God promised to give even to an older woman past childbearing years. And he's the product of a miracle, a miracle of God, a miracle of faith. So listen, if we talk about Isaac and Ishmael, and we're going to jump out of the story of Isaac and Ishmael quickly, but we've talked about that last week, and, the, and, the, and these, this text doesn't give that much info on it. But it's easy to see why God chose Isaac over Ishmael, isn't it? I mean, face it, Ishmael came from the wrong union. Ishmael came from sin. Ishmael was what we might say conceived in sin. I mean, there's no question that God's not going to bless that. There's no question that Abram went before God when he says, look, I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to use him and I'm going to bless all the world. And Abram, what does he say say to God? He says, oh, that Ishmael may live before thee. In other words, I've got a son, use him. I really love him. And God says, no, I'm sorry. I'll take care of him, but you're going to have a son with your wife. And that whole story of, wow, they laughed about it. They're like, are you kidding? We're too old for this. And God did what God did. And it was amazing. Certainly, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's clear to understand why God would choose Isaac over Ishmael. I don't think anybody in this room would have any problem with that, right? But the story of Abram, Sarah, Hagar, that story teaches us a very important practical truth. And that truth is this. Never do what's wrong to get a chance to do what's right. Never do what's wrong to get a chance to do what's right. Let me talk to you young people for a second. You know, there's all kinds of challenges in life. And I know that as teenagers, for example, you guys have a lot of things going on in your world that, you know, it's, you're figuring it out. You're trying to figure out who you are and what kind of an individual adult and path you're going to choose for yourself going forward. You guys represent a world of resource and opportunity. You guys have all kind of potential in your world But this world has pressures, man. And there's all kind of people and things screaming at you to compromise and to do something. And you might in your mind entertain the idea, because we all entertain the idea, by the way, all of us do, that if I just do this, then maybe I can gain an audience with somebody to do something good later. And the this that you're contemplating doing is sin. It's wrong. But somehow in your mind, you justify it thinking, if I just do this, I can get away with this. But then later... We might never say it this way. God will really use it. Don't be, so, don't be so foolish. It never works. And the story of Hagar and Ishmael and this whole deal is proof positive. What does God do with Ishmael? Well, he rejects him. And just like you might try and do with your life and do something questionable in order to get the opportunity to do something right, God will reject that too. He'll reject that too. So from the story of Isaac and Ishmael, because we have two examples, this is our first example. The lesson that we're going to learn from that is this, is that God's calling and election are the result of faith in God's promise. If they would just simply believe God and waited, the waiting is the tough part, right? And not tried to supersede that plan and say, I got an idea, let's try this. Outside of God's will, see, they wouldn't have gotten in trouble. God's calling and election are the result of faith in God's promise. God gave his word. He said this is going to happen. Okay, so Isaac is chosen. But what about his children? I mean, how does God choose? Well, that's the next example that covers more of the text that we have in front of us, and that's Jacob and Esau. And Jacob certainly is the one that is chosen over Esau, verses 10 to 13. 
In verse 11, we have that phrase, the purpose of God according to election. And it goes down to say, of him that calleth. Now, this story of the birth of Jacob and Esau, because that's going to be the reference. When Rebekah is with child or children, she's, she's barren. Isaac prays for her. This is a story back in Genesis chapter 25. We are recounting in Romans 9 now. The Holy Spirit is bringing up a story from history. And the history is Genesis chapter 25. When you go home, you can read Genesis 25 and get the whole account. But Rebecca is barren. They desperately want children. Isaac prays for her and God comes through. He answers and she is pregnant with twin boys. Esau is the one who is going to be born first. And the references to Jacob and Esau, you have to understand this, are not, they are not to the individuals, the individual boys as individual men. But they are references to the nations that will come from each of them. Genesis chapter 25 and verse 23, where we are going to get the quote of verse number 12 of Romans. Genesis 25, 23. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. You, you might, just for clarity's sake, say, And the people of the elder shall serve the people of the younger. That's exactly what is being said here. Remember, these men are federal heads over their nations. Last week we saw Genesis 32, 28. Jacob is Israel. God literally changed his name at that point in history. He wrestled with the angel. I won't let you go unless you bless me. And God said, okay, I'm going to do it. And he changes his name from Jacob, which means deceiver, supplanter. And he gives him the name Israel, prince with God. Jacob is the federal head now over this entire entity that will eventually become a political nation. They are not yet. Esau, on the other hand, in Genesis 36 and verse 1, is the nation Edom. Esau is Edom. Could the Bible be any clearer than that? I mean, it is at, there are some things that sometimes we study and we say, well, if you compare this with this and you understand the context and you put it in perspective and you lay all this out, then I think we can be pretty sure that it means this. This one isn't like that. Jacob is Israel. Esau is Edom. Genesis 25, two nations are in your womb. The peoples are going to interact in this way. It is absolutely crystal clear. So the context of the election because that's what we're dealing with in the, in the words of Romans 9, the context of the election of Jacob over Esau is literally the election of Israel over Edom. You've got to get that. Because if you allow yourself to slip into the idea, as many people do, and they write a lot of books, and you maybe have read some of them, that God is selecting one man over another man before their birth randomly to bless one and curse the other, that would be an error of context of God's revelation. Do you see that with me? Do you see how clear that is? So the context is the election of Israel over Edom, not one man over another man. And God had to choose. This is good. We're just getting started. He had to choose between the nations, right? 
even of Abraham's physical seed, God had to choose between the nations that would come from them. And this is the thing, man. All because of that dumb choice with Hagar. All because of that dumb choice with Hagar, all this stuff had to happen. Because he had a son with Hagar instead of Sarah, out of the bounds of biblical marriage. I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 2. Remind yourself of that original promise to Abram, where God said to Abram, I will make of thee, notice the words, a great nation, singular. The promise, the unconditional promise was, out of you, Abram, I am going to make one nation, and it is going to be a great nation. You fast forward in the narrative in the book of Genesis, and chapter number 16 is the chapter where they messed it up, and Sarah said, hey, how about Hagar? And he said, okay. So the sin with Hagar happens in Genesis 16. After that, Genesis 17, verse number 4. Now, after Ishmael is born, he comes back to tell Abraham, oh, by the way, we're going to still go through with that promise thing because it was unconditional. And he says, thou shalt be a father of many nations. That's the first time it shows up as plural. And it shows up as plural after Abram sinned and brought into the picture another, another guy who's going to represent a whole other nation of people, the Arab nations. And, and he said, look, now there's going to be many nations because God had actually told Hagar, by the way, I'm going to take care of your boy. Don't worry. I know you're rejected by Sarah and Abram kicked you to the curb. I'll take care of Ishmael. And you know what? They're taken care of. They're still around, aren't they? Go a little further down, but it's not just that now Abraham is going to be the father of many nations because he had Ishmael. It also goes down in Genesis 17 and verse 16 talking to Sarah. It says that she is going to be the mother of nations. Well, Sarah wasn't the mother of Ishmael, so this has got to continue on after Sarah has a birth, Isaac, and then Isaac's children turn into nations of people that they will turn into, and that is how it all began. That's how we get to where we're at. I hope you're tracking with me. So now there's going to be nations, and not only nations from Abraham, but nations from Sarah, and Sarah has Isaac, and Isaac with Rebekah has Jacob and Esau, and they're therefore, because still there, is, there must be a choice, there's still only, Genesis 12, going to be one great nation. And if there are two nations in Rebekah's womb, certainly they can't both be the great nation. Only one of them can, so God must elect, choose, select, call one of them. And he chose Jacob. That's important. So he elects Jacob over Esau. Why do you suppose that is? Well, we're going to see. Go back to Genesis 25, 23. It says, two nations are in thy womb. And notice this. And two manner of people. Two manner of people. Listen, God is not randomly choosing between two guys that were equal. God is not just arbitrarily, randomly saying, you know, spin the bottle and see who it points to. Okay, I'll take you. Uh, these are not two individuals that ultimately are going to have the same perspective on life throughout their existence. They are two manner of people. How does that work? 
Well, let's go back. Again, Genesis 25, it says, two nations are in thy womb. Now listen, we're adult people here. It's obvious from, I, I like, you know, the Captain Obvious thing, I, we get along. This is not literal. There is not literally two nations of people in her womb, right? That's obvious. It's also not figurative. They literally came from her and became nations of people. The only way that Genesis 25 can be true in that statement to Rebecca is in God's foreknowledge. Because God knew that each of the boys would ultimately become nations of people because, and this was something that was mentioned at 9 a.m. in the class, for example, that, that God, like a great artist, a great painter painting a picture, and God is outside of time, and God is able to see the entire painting all existing at the same exact time, although for the characters in the painting, in other words, us in our, our, our daily life living it out. We don't know necessarily what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day, but God is outside of time. He sees it all happen in a current present now. And because he's able to do that, he has foreknowledge of things that will transpire. He can say to Rebecca at the time of conception, listen, those two boys that are in your womb, they represent two nations. They represent two entirely different manner of people. They are not going to work it out the same way. Isaiah 46 and verse number 10 talks about God's ability to declare the end from the beginning. And he can do that because he's outside of time and he sees it all happen. God knew ahead of time, before they were even born, that Esau was carnally minded. He knew that. You have a testimony of that in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 16 where it talks about Esau. It says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. I mentioned last week that that tick got off. He did not honor and respect and value the, the right of the firstborn that was due him, and he sold it off for his carnal-minded self-fulfillment, his belly, his flesh. Jacob, on the other hand, was spiritually minded. Hebrews 11, that great chapter on faith, mentions Jacob in verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Listen, I know Jacob had problems. By the way, who doesn't? Jacob was a spiritually minded man who blew it and got right with God a few times. Kind of like a lot of us. But he loved the Lord. He wanted to do what was right. So God, knowing the outcome beforehand, elected Jacob as the federal head of Israel, the people that God chooses to represent him in the world. To further reinforce this truth, we have that quote in verse number 12. The elder shall serve the younger. Now that can only be applied nationally. It can only be applied nationally. For example, 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 14. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom put he garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servants. Who's David the king of? I forget. Israel. <laughs> Edom, as a people, serve Jacob 
Israel as a people. The elder, Esau, shall serve the younger, Jacob. You go through and you study the book of Genesis as it gives the account divinely preserved for us to have what God wants us to have. And never one time, never once, will you find that Esau, the man, ever served Jacob, the man, ever. Never happened. Because the context is not individual. The context is national. It's absolutely national. And if you don't get that, you're just being dishonest. You're just not paying attention. You're not seeing what God is saying to us. It's very clear. To try and make an individual application of these verses is to pervert the clear teaching of the Scripture. Verse number 13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Wow, that's a tough saying. I mean, God looked down at some people and say, I love you, I hate you. Wow, I'd hate to be that guy, right? I mean, how's, why is that? What's that all about? Well, as it is written, well, that means it came from somewhere. Where did it come from? It came from the book of Malachi. It came from Malachi chapter number one, first three verses, right out of the gate. I want you to know the context of Malachi chapter 1. Everything is done in context. I hate it when you take my words out of context. You hate it when people take your words out of context. God probably isn't too thrilled about it when we take his words out of context, right? Malachi chapter 1, verse number 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to somebody. Who? Israel. There's your context. By Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Listen, Malachi is written some 1,500 years after Jacob and Esau were born. Malachi is written, yes, under the inspiration, prophetic inspiration of God, obviously, but it is written way after the fact that those guys proved their life. They lived their existence. They made their choices. They charted their course. And it is now history. When Malachi's written, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. How in the world could you take that as though God is making some arbitrary decision of the individuals before they ever lived it out with no basis whatsoever that's apparent. This was after the conclusion of their lives. I also want to point out to you, just for the sake of temperance, that when the Bible uses the word hate, even God, because that sounds strong, man, God hating somebody, that's a bad thing. But really, the, the idea of hate, even in God's usage, is not absolute. It's not absolute hatred. Hate is often used simply as a comparative term to something that's greater. I'm going to bring to your attention very quickly. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus is talking about discipleship. And he goes on and he says, hey, if you don't hate your mother and father and wife, children, brothers, sisters, look, you're not, you're not worthy to be my disciple. And you're thinking, man, I have to hate my family? No, that's not what he's saying. Because you compare Scripture with Scripture and you go to Matthew 10, 37, and he clarifies exactly what he means by hate. And he says, hey, if you love those guys more than you love me, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. See what he's saying? So it's not an absolute hatred anyway. It's just the idea that, look, I'm picking this guy. I, my love for him is greater. Why? Because his love for me is greater. It's just that easy. 
So in the issue of Jacob and Esau, here's the lesson. God's calling and election are the result of foreknowledge of God's people every time. God's calling and election are the result of foreknowledge. God knew beforehand what was going to transpire in history. That does not mean that he made it to happen that way. Foreknowledge of God's people. It is based on their choices of either following or rejecting God. If you were to flip the page over to Romans chapter 11, and the very first verse, it says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? That's the future application. We'll get to that in detail later. But has God cast away his people? God forbid. Verse number two, the very beginning. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. It's crystal clear. It's consistent. The Bible's always consistent. So for now, Israel's on a detour, right? But they'll eventually return. But they're on the detour because of their unbelief. Romans chapter 11 and verse number 20 says it this way. Well, because of unbelief, they, Israel, the natural olive tree branches, they were broken off from the blessing of the tree. Why? Because of their unbelief. It's just, it just couldn't be any clearer. God foreknew some things that they were going to choose to do to believe or not believe. But these verses have no application to individual believers. There is most certainly no contextual application to God making unconditional election of individuals from eternity past. Yet people draw these conclusions. And so I want to shift gears a little bit here and go to our second point and Outside of the direct context concerning Israel, now I want to talk about this, this point concerning Christians. In the last three verses, we're going to shift gears a little bit and make a little more practical personal application. I want to see how these verses apply to us today. I mean, the direct context is still Israel. There's no question about it as a nation, their response to God's word. Still, there's far too many people that try and make, take Romans 9 and make it teach something that it most certainly does not teach. And there is a false system of teaching that is gaining popularity among Christians today, and it's commonly referred to as Calvinism. It's also referred to as Reformed theology, as though it's the theology that came out of the Protestant Reformation. John Calvin was a French Roman Catholic that lived in about the 16th century in the 1500s. And uh, he would have began to see some things in the Bible that the Roman Catholic Church had wrong, and he began to teach those things. And he was one of a number of very well-known historic figures, like Martin Luther, he would have been a little after Luther, uh, that have come, would have come through that time in history and helped begin to turn the tide away from the overwhelming power that the Roman Catholic Church had over all of Europe. So John Calvin was a French reformer, and basically the teaching... If you all just want to boil it down into, into one sentence, I mean, there's a lot to it. But it's basically the teaching of God's unconditional election of every individual before Genesis 1-1 ever showed up that each individual would either live forever in heaven or they would live forever in hell. The, the basic theology of Calvinism, if I, if I can simplify it, and I am simplifying is that God would have decided before he ever created anything, before he ever created the sun and the moon and the stars and the trees and the fish and the animals and man, before he ever did anything, he decided, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, all y'all are out. You're, I mean, that, that's, that's the idea. I mean, 
That, that's the idea. And I'm not trying to malign that. I'm trying to point out to you that people come to these conclusions and one of their favorite places to go to defend it is Romans chapter 9. So we have to talk about it a little bit because I want to help you. I'm here to help you. Okay, since verses 11 to 13, this whole Jacob, Esau, purpose of God of election, uh, not of works of him that calleth, the elder serves the younger, they weren't even born yet, they haven't done good or evil, I love one, I hate the other. Since that possibly could confuse some people, and apparently it does, I find it very interesting that God follows up that conversation with verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. There is no unrighteousness with God. Verses 15 and 16 are our favorites of Reformed theology. For he saith to Moses, a quote from Exodus 33, we'll see that in a minute. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Now those verses have something to say, and we're going to see in a minute exactly what they say. But just to give you an idea of where people go in their minds, by the way, this is just another good example of what not to do when you study the Bible. Don't go too far beyond, don't go at all beyond what God says, and don't let your mind wander. So, for example, a Calvinist would read verses 15 and 16 this way. I'm going to exaggerate a little for emphasis. Okay, bear with me. But this is what they understand and mean when they read those verses we just read. Here's basically what they're thinking. For he saith unto Moses, I will put into heaven those whom I have predestinated to go to heaven, and I will elect to heaven for those whom the blood pays. So it's not a sinner who by an act of will receives Jesus Christ, nor of the man that works, but God who sovereignly elects people without the exercise of their free will. That is an accurate representation of the teaching of Calvinism. And when I tell you there's a growing popularity of this, I mean it is rampant. And I'm just guessing at a, at a percentage, but I'm just going to say 80 plus percent of the books that you might buy in a typical Christian bookstore are going to have a Calvinistic bent to them. And if you like to read and you like to read extra biblical literature, study materials or whatever, my guess is, is that the vast majority of people that you read, if they're known at all today, they probably believe that. They probably believe that stuff. You may or may not realize it. But it's everywhere. And it, but it sounds crazy, doesn't it? Okay, so how about we do this? We're in church. Look, the clock's ticking, you know. We're not going to be here all day. How about we just set aside for a second these imaginary thoughts that people conjure up and just study the context and see what it says. You want to do that? You want to just see what God says and figure out what it means based on what he says? First off, verse 15, like I mentioned to you, quotes the Old Testament. And before we even look at Exodus chapter 33, I just want to remind you that nobody in the Old Testament is in Jesus Christ. Nobody in the Old Testament is born again in a New Testament sense like you understand it. You cannot take the context of New Testament salvation after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit to seal you forever in eternity as a son of God spiritually. You cannot take that context 
and force-fit it back into Exodus. You cannot do that. It would be an error to do so. But literally, that's kind of what they're doing. So the quote is Exodus chapter 33, and the verse says this, verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and, I will be, and be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So it is a quote from that time frame. What was going on in Exodus chapter 33? Well, in Exodus chapter 32, Moses is still on the mountain. He's receiving the word of God on Sinai, and Aaron and the camp are down in the valley, and they are boiling up all the gold and they're their, you know, all, all the gold that they had and, and they boil it up in a pot and they come up and they form this calf and they decided that this golden calf is now going to be the God that we will worship. It was idol worship. It was pagan idolatry in just a short period of time. I mean, Moses literally is in the, in the presence of God Almighty getting his holy perfect word, the law that is coming down. And these people revert to pagan idol worship. And God basically says, get out of the way. I want to toast them all. And Moses prays for him, man. I mean, Moses is meek. Moses is a shepherd. Moses is awesome. And ultimately, God makes this statement. In the face of their pagan idolatry, he's like, look, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to show mercy to who I want to show mercy to. I'm going to show compassion. I'm going to be gracious to whom I'll be gracious to. There's There's no connection whatsoever to individual salvation in Exodus chapter 33. But the Calvinist places this decision before Genesis 1.1 and says the decision was some sort of an arbitrary choice of God alone based solely on his good pleasure. Here's what you got to understand. Verses 15 and 16 aren't hard to understand. Here's the lesson I put in your notes. You don't decide whether God will have mercy on you. That's what he's trying to say. God decides whether he'll have mercy on you. But here's what you got to get. But God bases that decision on the conditions that he has set for showing mercy to a sinner. It is not arbitrary and absolute. God set up the system. In other words, a person cannot wish hard enough to make God have mercy on them. But he can set his will to meet God's predetermined conditions for giving out his mercy. The New Testament application is very clear, right? God has chosen to show us mercy in Jesus Christ. So anybody who comes to God through Jesus Christ in the way that God prescribed it, by faith in his atoning work, the death, the burial, and resurrection, receives God's mercy. It's just that easy. You could get a guy who's a God rejecter and he can wish and will all he wants for God's mercy. That does not make it so. God shows mercy to whomever he wants, but it's not some arbitrary picking the petals off of a daisy. Literally, what he does is he prescribes, if you will get on this path, you will get mercy. And if you will not get on that path, well, sorry. And I don't care how bad you want it, you gotta get on the path. He prescribed the path. He bases the decision based on conditions that he has set. You come to God on God's terms, or you don't come at all. That's just that simple. You say, well, that's narrow. Well, he gave you a path. It's not that narrow. It's not like you don't have one. Well, I want to do it a different way. Well, roll the dice, man. 
I don't. I want to do it his way. He already told me a way that works. I'm doing that. (laughs) And I think you should too. That's not hard to understand, is it? I mean, why do we have to uh, contort the context to make up some imaginary system? I just don't understand. So let's connect the context to some New Testament applications. And I'm going to give you a series of New Testament verses that'll kind of help to put some of this stuff together. We're going to start in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29. We're just going to walk through a few of these verses. Galatians 3, 29. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. People say, well, see, the church is the new Israel now. Well, if you want to say that we have some spiritual blessings that come to us and we are Abraham's seed only in the sense that through the physical lineage, Jesus Christ showed up. And because we are literally, technically in Christ, yeah, but don't try and cash in your born-again Christian card and go get you a plot of land over in the Middle East because it's due to you. It don't work that way. Okay, it says according to the promise. I mentioned last week, you have to be careful between the promises and the promise. Abraham got a lot of promises. The only one that comes to us is the blessing. It's the blessing of eternal life, right? We get in on that one because we're in Christ. Okay, so if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's seeds and heir heir according to the promise. Uh, Romans 4.13. We're going to play off this idea of the promise and understand what that is a little better. For the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. How did he get it? But through what is called the righteousness of faith. You want to get in on the promise? You got to get in based on the righteousness of faith. Let's further define that. Romans chapter 10, verse 6 starts off. But the righteousness which is of faith, do you see how God puts this together? This is not hard. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. And it goes down a couple of verses. Let's jump in at our favorite verse. Got to be one of our favorite verses, verse number 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You exercise that faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You confess with your mouth that he is the Lord of your life. You believe in your heart that he died on the cross for your sins. You will be saved and you will obtain the righteousness which is of faith, which is the fulfillment of the promise, which gets you in on the blessing of Abraham and his seed and all of that inheritance on a spiritual-only application. Galatians 3, verse 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And further down that chapter in verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Not through works, not just because you wish it was so, it's through faith. It's a simple contrast of grace versus works. When you believe on Jesus Christ, you receive the adoption of sons and become heirs according to the spiritual promise. That's pretty clear. That's real clear. Now, if my working to lay out the verses for you helped you, praise the Lord. And if that put to rest in your heart and in your mind some things that maybe you were wrestling with, praise the Lord. If it just caused a whole lot more questions, come back next week. (laughs) Because we'll talk more about next week. We're not done. What can we take away from this lesson today? What, what kind of practical, real boots on the ground, 
tomorrow I'm going to work, practical application can we take away from this? Because we've had some Bible study today. Well, the thing I want you to understand is, just like Ishmael and Isaac, just like Esau and Jacob, just like the first Adam and the second Adam, your first birth is no good. (laughs) You need a second birth. In each of these cases, the blessed one is the second one. You notice that? Make that practical application. Understand that we are all born physically, but that does not solve the problem. It's just the beginning. We must be born again, and that born again is of the Spirit. John chapter 3, it's very clear. Verse number 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It goes down further in that chapter, verses 5 through 8, except a man be born of water, that's your physical birth, and of the Spirit, that's your spiritual birth. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but it canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born in the Spirit. And literally, like the diagram I showed you earlier, the diagram that showed national Israel, but a believing portion as a subset. Literally, in our spiritual life, we have the same thing. We have our physical life. Of course, you're born, you're breathing, you're here. But you need spiritual life. You need to have that going for you. It is the subset of the the, the believing population of born-again Christians in this world are a subset of the, the greater population of human beings, right? Obviously. I want to leave you with one last verse of Scripture, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 10. Wherefore the rather, brethren, notice what he says, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. How could you possibly give diligence to make your calling and election sure? If your calling and election were predetermined by God before Genesis 1-1, before you were ever born, and it was absolutely irrefutable. You couldn't possibly resist it, change it, do anything to it. If God determined, and whether you wanted to, you're going to heaven, and whether you want to or not, you're going to hell. And God determined, if that were truly the case, which thankfully it is not, how in the world could the Holy Spirit write 2 Peter 1.10? You give diligence? No, no, no. What he's talking about comes from the context of 2 Peter chapter 1. Like everything comes from context, verses 5 to 7, there are seven things you add to your faith. And when you live your life that way, you make sure of this calling and election that's been placed on your life. Listen, it's not hard. Let me just wrap up with this. This is good news, y'all. I mean, this is really good news. The good news is this. If you're not sure if you're in Christ, don't worry about whether you were predetermined to be in or out of Christ. That doesn't apply. You can receive him today. That's the good news. You absolutely can. And if you are in Christ and you know that you're in Christ and for whatever reason you have been doing what Abram did with Hagar and 
kind of taking it your own way. Maybe it's time for you to say, you know what, I, I really messed that up. I need to get that right with God. But whatever the case is, if you will just confess and believe, God will receive you. He loves you. We saw last week that God chooses whom he loves, and God loved the whole world. He chooses all of you, but you have to respond. You have to respond. So that's what we're going to do now. Let's pray together. And if you would bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to ask a quick question before we pray, and that's this. You'd say, you know what, Jeff, I'm not 100% sure that I'm saved, but man, I want to be. And I, I can't even tell you I understood everything in this Bible study today, but you know what? I understood this. I've been born physically. I'm not sure I've been born spiritually. But I don't want to risk it. I don't want to try and find another path when God's already given me a path. And I just wish you'd pray for me. I want to receive Christ as my Savior today. If that's you, would you just hold your hand up high so I can pray for you? There's a couple of people in the back. God bless you. Thank you. Young person down front. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. Anybody on the right side? Anybody upstairs? Just want to pray for you. Just be honest and say, look, Lord, that's me. I, I don't want to risk it, man. I want to get right with God. I want to pray. I want to receive him now. Thank you. Maybe you're here and you'd say, you know what? I know I've been saved, but wow, I've been in the flesh. And the blessing does not come through the flesh. Just like Ishmael was rejected, my plans have been rejected. And it's pretty obvious my plans have been rejected and I'm tired of it. And you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surrender it all to the Lord again. If that's you and you just raise your hand honestly, pray for me. Pray for me. That's just, just pray for me. There's hands all over. God bless you for being honest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for working in the hearts of these individuals. Lord, I, I prayed before we started. 